0: Good morning, and welcome to this worship service on this beautiful Lord's Day. Please stand and join me in the call to worship, which is printed in your bulletin. Praise the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. On high, who sits on the heavens the he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes of their people. O God, who makes yourself known both in the stillness and in the flurry of life, we sense your presence here with us now. In music, word, and song, we lift our hearts to you. Purify our thoughts and strengthen our resolve that we will continually be aware of your presence and grace in our lives. This we pray in your name, amen.
1: Invite you before you're seated to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Perhaps meet someone uh, new or greet someone you haven't seen for a while. As we gather today, uh, there are a few things happening in the life of our church at other times, and you see in the bulletin uh, a few announcements. I do want to specifically mention that tonight at 6 o'clock, we'll be gathering in the community room directly behind us for a uh, welcome dessert. This is an opportunity to meet people who might be new to the area or new to the church. And if you fit either of those categories, we especially want you to come, uh, but we want everyone to be there and to have a chance to fellowship and uh, perhaps meet some new folks and get connected and reconnected uh, after the summer is just about done. And uh, we we look forward to this time together. Everything, all the food and drinks will be supplied, so just come and enjoy a time of fellowship together. You also see that uh, next Sunday, our worship schedule again, services at 940 and eleven. And uh, next Sunday evening at 5, we'll be having a a larger potluck, and uh, you see information in the bulletin about that. We are uh, preparing for Sunday school to begin in a couple of weeks. We still need a few people to help with our children's ministries. Uh, Children are very important to us as a church, and we want to do everything we can to instill in them the Word of God and the truths of God. And you have an opportunity to be a part of that. And so if you are interested in helping with Sunday School, you see information in the bulletin about people to contact. And also, uh, Family Directory, uh, the new pictorial directory, is in the uh, picture-taking stages. We have uh, some more days of taking pictures in mid-September. And if you have, didn't get one a picture taken in August, hope you'll sign up in September and be a part of this directory. There are always things for us to pray about, concerns related to us right here, as well as things around the world. And we especially want to pray about the situation in Egypt and and other places where uh, things seem to be uh, unraveling and asking for God's peace and his grace and mercy upon the people of the nations of the world. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Open our eyes to the truth of our frailty and fallibility. Give us courage to admit when we are wrong and courage to seek forgiveness from those who have been hurt by our sinful ways. Forgive our stubbornness, our closed-mindedness, our arrogance, and our apathy toward others. Fill us with the grace and truth of your Holy Spirit that we might think, see, and and act more like Christ, through whom we pray. Amen.
0: Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to assist us with the giving of our tithes and offerings, I invite you to stand for the glory of thank you that you are so generous to us. All that we have is a gift from you. Help us to serve one another so that we may reflect your spirit and your goodness. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Christ himself calls us to bring our burdens and our concerns to the Father. And as we come together and worship, one of the great joys we have is praying together, joining our hearts, our minds, our spirits in prayer. If you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you come and offer your prayers, I invite you to join me. Heavenly Father, we have come today because you have called us. You invite us to come into your presence to pour out our hearts in prayer. We come today acknowledging our need and counting on your help. Our prayers today are Probably as varied as we are. So hear us as we pray. Hear our prayers for those who suffer. In whatever form the suffering may take, bring your healing. Hear our prayers for all who grieve. for those who have experienced a recent death those who might be marking the anniversary of a death for all who are struggling with the death of a relationship or of a dream comfort us in our grief we pray that you will strengthen us in our weakness lift us as we struggle under the heavy burden of living in this fallen, broken world. And help us to look to you as our source of life and grace, restoration, mercy. Father, we pray for our world that continues to be mired in Pain, distress, and famine, and drought, and violence and death. Father, for all who are hungry, supply food to eat. For every victim of injustice, we pray that they will be vindicated. Father, we pray for all who are struggling with being caught in the crossfire of greed and grasping for power. And pray for your peace to come where violence is so prevalent, so common. We pray for your church in the world and we thank you for all of the ways in which we see your spirit at work in your church and the miraculous things that are happening in so many places of the world. And we pray for your church in places of persecution and opposition. That you will give strength and protection and witness. And help us, Father, to humbly learn And be inspired by our brothers and sisters who live in places of the world where they face things that we find difficult to imagine. Father, we pray for the nation of Egypt. In this time of war and violence, so much death and grief. Grasping for power. Bring your peace on this great nation. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for your love and compassion and for your grace on us and on your world. We pray that you will help us and your people everywhere to be witnesses of your light and of your love we offer our prayers through the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.
0: Our New Testament scripture reading is Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. So that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please be seated. Imagine this scenario for a moment. A guy charters a boat, but he's never been on a boat before in his life. He goes out by himself, he doesn't tell anybody where he's going. He takes no provisions. He has no radio, no life jackets. He, um, and he goes out knowing that he is sailing right into a, an unbelievably strong storm. And he gets out in the middle of it, and the storm rocks the boat in such a way that it capsizes and he ends up sinking in the water. And to top it off, this isn't the first time he's done this. In fact, it's 12, 15, 20 times. I don't know who the guy is that keeps sending him out in the boat, that owns the boat, but that's a whole other story to think about. But he goes out in the boat and he keeps doing the same thing over and over again. And there's something in us that wants to say, you know what, you keep doing that, you get what you get, you know. You get what you deserve. We kind of view the things that people do that way. And when I think about this psalm, Psalm 130, there's something of that image that comes to my mind of a guy out in a boat, and, and he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. He is totally at fault, and here he is crying out to be rescued. You see, there are some psalms that are where, where the psalmist cries out for help because he or she is being oppressed. There are some psalms that are where people cry out because of injustice. Because the weight of the world is on them. Because people have mistreated them. But this is not one of those psalms. This is a psalm written by someone who is sinking under the weight, the guilt, the shame... Of their own sin. When you begin, the psalm begins Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice, and I cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? This is about sin. And this is about someone who is sinking in the depths of despair and shame and guilt because of sin and crying out for help. Now I think one of the reasons that we have a tendency to look at people who have who may have done these kinds of things over and over again with a certain amount of of uh, disgust is because we don't think seriously about our own sin. See we read the psalm like this, and most of us probably aren't thinking that we have lived with this Enormous weight of guilt and shame on us. Because that kind of feeling, that's related to the really bad sins. That's related to the stuff that might get you kicked out of the church. These are the big things. Well, those things, sure, no problem. You feel that shame and guilt and, and all of that, you like you're sinking in the depths. We get that. But most of us probably don't think that way about our own sins. And the moment that those thoughts come into my mind, I automatically think of a couple of passages of Scripture. One of them is in Luke 18, where Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They go to the temple to pray. And the, the Pharisee kneels down and he says, oh God, thank you that I'm not such a horrible person like this tax collector over here. Thank you, God, that I don't take advantage of people like He does. Thank you, God, that I'm not the, that I'm not the, the swine of the earth like this guy is. Thank you, oh God, that I'm a good person. And the tax collector's over there on his face with his nose buried in the floor, saying, God, he's right. That's who I am. I'm horrible. I've done all these terrible things. I am a wretched sinner. And Jesus says it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that goes away right with God. See, one of the things that we tend to do in rationalizing our sin is we compare ourselves to other people. Of course, we don't compare ourselves to people who are better than us. We compare ourselves to people who are worse than us, right? I don't do what they do. I'm not struggling with that sin. So I must be okay. Okay. And we rationalize all kinds of ways. And, and I'm also reminded of a couple of things that Paul says. One is Second Corinthians chapter 12. Where he, gives, he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And just to make sure we don't miss it, in Galatians chapter 5, he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. And we kind of think, well, let's just stop right there because, yeah, those are bad things and we don't do those things. But he doesn't stop there. He says, well, let's not forget hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, Drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, we want to rationalize our sins. We want to say, "Well, I'm not that bad." Sin is sin, and we ought to feel guilty about our sin. There ought to be a sense of of shame about our sin, and so often one of the reasons that that we don't recognize how much we need God is because we don't really want to admit that we're that bad. That we're really struggling with that much until we find, come across a list like this. But the psalmist recognizes that he is in deep trouble. He's crying out, Lord, I, I've blown it. I am in serious trouble here and I need help. We often find that when we I think when we get ourselves into these positions, whatever they may be, our first solution is to try to get ourselves out of it. We work a little harder. We just, we just set our noses to the grindstone a little more. If we could just, you know, we just do, I'm going to do better next time. And, and there's good in that. But that would then mean the psalm would read, out of the depths, I climbed out myself. Out of the depths, I got myself up to the surface and I tipped the boat back over and crawled back up on the deck. Out of the depths, I can handle it. And the psalmist says, out of the depths, I cry out to you, O Lord, because there is no way in the world I can handle it. The only hope I have is if you come and rescue me. And you and I need that mindset. We need this mindset that that acknowledges that without God's help, we are dead in the water. Without God's help, we can do nothing. We'll never get anywhere. Without God's help, we are sinking like a stone and nothing can change it without God's help. And the psalmist can say, God, he can cry out to God and know with confidence that God hears him because he knows the character of God. In verse 4, he says, With you there is forgiveness. Verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. With the Lord is unfailing love, with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He cries out to God because God is the one being who loves him enough to save him. It's always intrigued me that when God has the opportunity to describe himself, in the Old Testament particularly, he often says, I want you to know who I am. I am the God of patience and forgiveness and loving kindness. That doesn't mean that God isn't just. It doesn't mean that God isn't truth. It doesn't mean that God doesn't take sin seriously because He does. But when God describes Himself, it usually includes something of those words about the, His nature and His character as loving and forgiving and compassionate and full of grace and mercy. For centuries. People have tried to reconcile the image of God in the Old Testament with the image of Jesus in the New Testament. You go back to Marcion, way back in the early century of the church, who couldn't reconcile it. And so he said, the old, God of the Old Testament is, is some other being. And, of course, when you throw out the Old Testament, then you start having to throw out a lot of the New Testament as well. And there are ongoing debates about how to figure that out, and we're not going to solve that today. But the reality is, this is the same God. What we see in, in Jesus is who God is. What we see in, in, in God is who Jesus is. And while we see someone who holds us accountable for our sin, we also see a God who is loving and gracious and merciful. It is what separates him from all the other gods, it is, it is true holiness in God that he doesn't respond in spite in spite of our sin but he responds with grace and mercy and loving kindness. And the other gods of the nations around Israel you know, those gods are happy to punish their people and get their pound of flesh and the only way that they will ever exude forgiveness is if they are appeased enough. You sacrifice enough, you do enough, you you accomplish enough, you give them enough. And God says, you could never give me enough because it's in God's very nature to love and to forgive and to be full of grace. God loves to forgive. I have this image in my mind of God just chomping at the bit to forgive and to show us how deeply he loves us. And we often wrestle with that image of God, and it's for the very this very reason who God is that we can trust Him. We can trust God. We can trust the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. You know, uh, sometimes it's hard to reconcile those stories in the Old Testament. You know, we, we struggle with some of those images. I, was, I read a story of a little boy years ago who was sitting in Sunday school class and, you know, they were teaching him through the year all these Old Testament stories. It, it made me think, one of these days I'm going to preach a series of sermons, stories you probably shouldn't tell our children in, a, in Sunday school. But, you know, he's reading all these stories, they're telling him all these stories. You can see the wheels going in his mind of trying to figure that out, trying to reconcile it. And all of a sudden the light goes on and he says, oh, I get it. All of that was before God was a Christian. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard. And this, but here is the psalmist in the middle of the Old Testament life saying, God is good and merciful and we can trust him. Verses 5 and 6, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. That repeated phrase is, is something you, you see often in Hebrew poetry, and it, it's emphasizing this passion that he's trying to communicate. You, you think picture a sentry on duty at night, walking around the walls of the city. Everything is dark. And when it's dark, anxiety rises and the level of fear rises and you hear every noise and every creak and, and everything going on and you're continually looking around and, and, and there is this sense of, of insecurity. I remember times when, when uh, especially when the, the kids were younger, that uh, sometimes when I'd be working at a camp for a week or so, Cindy and the boys would go to her parents for a while and I'd usually have a night at home by myself. And, you know, in that darkness of the night, you hear everything. Stuff that I'm sure were going, was going on all the t- rest of the time. But in that darkness, by yourself, you know, the anxiety level rises. What's weird is that a few times Cindy went to a retreat or something, it was just me and the boys. And, you know, they might have been five, six years old. I felt more secure with them there. Like they were going to save me or something. I don't know. But there is that sense of just that darkness brings a sense of fear and you look out and you're waiting for that first light of dawn. And something about that first light of dawn brings relief. You think of a century in those ancient days guarding the wall in the middle of the night and every few minutes gazing up at the horizon looking for that first light of the sun. And you can't wait He's passionate about it. And the psalmist says, this is the best I can do to try to communicate the depth in my soul of how much I want God. Every part of my being yearns for God. I trust Him that much. I believe, I'm convinced that despite the sins I've committed, despite the guilt and the shame that I feel, God is the answer. And I trust Him to be the answer. I know it. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. You know, the son, prodigal son goes off, he takes his father's inheritance, he embarrasses his father, he squanders everything he has, and he's sitting there in the middle of a pigsty thinking, if I could just eat what the pigs are eating. And in that moment, it strikes him, you know what, I'd be better off to be a slave of my father. I'm better off to go back and face the music with my dad. Take what he'll give me. And he goes back to him. And there is this sense of trusting God that draws us back to God. But here's the interesting thing about the parable of the, of the prodigal son. The son doesn't run to the father. The father runs to the son. This is the God in whom we place our trust. It doesn't matter what sins we've committed, if we think they're too big for God to forgive or too small to mess with. Our loving Heavenly Father is inviting us to come to Him and find grace and forgiveness and freedom. This is a song of ascents, like a number of the psalms before it. It's one of the songs that the the pilgrims sing as they make their way into Jerusalem. And it strikes me as kind of an odd song for them to sing as they prepare for worship. You would think it would be all about hallelujah, praise the Lord, this is glorious, we're going to the temple. Because that's how we tend to think of worship that way. And this is a psalm of, oh man, out of the depths I cry out to God, this is bad. But that's just how it begins. As the psalm moves forward, there is a psalm of hope. Because he knows that in the presence of God and with God's people, there is hope. And I suspect that there are times where we feel unworthy to come to worship. We look around and we think, if people knew the struggles that I've had this week, they wouldn't want me in worship. If people knew the kind of stuff that I'm wrestling with, they would say, you really shouldn't be here today. If people understood all the things that were going on in my life, they would say, this is really not the place for you. When in reality, this is exactly the place for us. Because every one of us deals with stuff. Every one of us is wrestling with sin of one kind or another because none of us are perfect. And we're all on the journey in one place or another. And this is exactly the place where we come. That's why when we've talked often about metaphors for the church, one of the most profound metaphors for the church is a hospital. The church is not a country club, it's a hospital. Jesus says, I've come for people who recognize and who acknowledge, I'm messed up. I'm struggling, I'm sick, and only God can help me. That's exactly what the church is about. And we come together and we encourage each other, we pray together, we sing together, we, we engage the word together. And God uses that as a means of helping us and restoring us and loving us, the church is not for people who are perfect. Now, does that mean that we don't worry about sinning? Not at all. Romans six, we read earlier. Paul's very clear. We don't talk about the love and the grace of God as as sort of a, a an out for us to do whatever we want to do. That's not what the gospel's about. The problem that I find for a lot of us is that we're thinking of the gospel as perfection. When the scriptures talk to us about the gospel as trust. We are called to live holy lives, but holy lives doesn't mean I I see if I can make myself perfect. Holy living is how much can I trust God to make me the person he's calling me to be. It's like the difference in the way that people often approach uh, entering a new course, a new class. You know, it doesn't matter of high school, college, graduate school. Some people enter in the first day of the, of the class, and, in, and their mindset is I'm here to get an A. And the goal of me of being in this class is to get an A. Other people come to the course and their and their goal is to learn as much as possible about whatever's being taught to engage the subject matter with every part of their being and to walk out of the class understanding the concepts of of the class far more than they did when they started now i suspect that people who you take the second approach often end up with a's but not always But I'm pretty certain that people whose goal is to get an A rarely end up walking out truly having engaged the course. Because it's simply about, I just want to make sure I cram enough to do well on the test. I just want to make sure that that I can get this paper done and move on to the next thing. And often, our mindset about God is, I can just make myself perfect, then everything will be okay. When all the while, God is, I'm sure, smiling because not one of us can make ourselves perfect. He's just calling us not to be perfect, but to trust Him so that He can make us holy. And there's risk in that. There's risk in that kind of life. There's a safety, a feeling of safety at least in saying, I'm just going to work as hard as I can to be perfect. There's risk involved with trust. Always is. See, we aren't, we aren't called. The answer isn't, the answer to being out in the water and having our boat tip over and us crying out from the deep. The solution to that is not sitting on our boat docked at the shore. Who buys a boat just to leave it at the dock? I mean, what's the point? The point of a boat is to get out into the water. But the minute you go out into the water, there are all kinds of things that may happen. Storms can arise. You can fall out of the boat. You can get hurt. Things can, all kinds of stuff can take place that might bring danger. But that's what life, that's real life. Sitting by the dock is not real life. God isn't calling us to be safe. He's calling us to a life of risk-taking trust. And that will mean sometimes we capsize. And sometimes we fall out of the boat and we struggle. But the grace of God is bigger and greater. And again, it, does, it is not an excuse to do whatever we want. It is simply being real about life. And crying out to God for his help that then makes us more and more like him. As people who are known by the spirit of Christ. And when you when your boats just docked at the shore it's as though we have this mindset of i only sin about 10% so i'm only i only need about 10% of god's grace when the reality is we're humans we're imperfect we're in, we're, we're fallible and broken and we need all of god's grace And as God's grace gets into us, then we start looking more like Christ. Through the years, Brennan Manning has been an author, a speaker, who has impacted a lot of people's lives. He's written a number of books, Ruthless Trust, Office Child, Ragamuffin Gospel, among others. He has spoken to thousands of people through the years, and and uh, many of you, I would guess, have probably read some of his writings, and, and and you know his theme of of grace and and even of of honesty. He died in April. And the last book he wrote, he titled uh, "All Is Grace," and the subtitle was "A Ragamuffin's Memoir." And he he says in this book that it is the most he is the most brutally honest. He's been in any of his writings, any place he's spoken. And he is. And his his story is one of triumph and tragedy. And triumph again and tragedy again. His story is is, is his struggle as a as a Catholic priest who then gives up his his credentials to get married. Years later, ends up getting divorced. And much of his life story focuses around his struggle being an alcoholic. And in fact, he himself says it is alcoholism that eventually cuts short his life. Philip Yancey, who ironically wrote What's So Amazing About Grace, writes in the foreword of this memoir, All Is Grace some words that from the moment I read them, they've haunted me. And they've haunted me partly because I, I, I know they're true. And partly because I wrestle to really engage them being true. He says this. As you read this memoir, you may be tempted as I was to think, oh, what might have been if if Brennan hadn't given in to drink? And then he says, I want to encourage you to to re reframe that thought. And to and to ask it maybe like this What might have been if Brennan had never discovered? grace. And my question for us is, have we discovered grace? We all know we wrestle with sin. And we all know that God has more for us than where we are. But in the midst of that, have we truly discovered grace. Grace that can be honest about our sin and grace that's rooted in our loving, forgiving Heavenly Father. Please pray with me. In this brief moment of silence, cry out to God in whatever way you may need to and know that he hears you. Father, with the psalmist, we cry out to you. We acknowledge our sin and we acknowledge your grace, your loving kindness, your mercy. Father, give us a new glimpse, a new experience of your grace today that we might be more and more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is Hymn 267 that declares Jesus my strength, my hope. Let us stand as we sing together.